In whatever form you have brought it, I'll invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. We're finding so many gold nuggets of truth and practical application in this passage that, again, even though we're only looking at verses 7 through 13, it's taking us a while to march through Mark's gospel. And I like this style of study because it keeps us on track with learning things, trying to find out what does the text actually tell us rather than trying to kind of impart our own desires onto the text, which is very easy to do. And we had been asking the question last time when we started this section, how do these instructions that Jesus gives to his 12, the inner circle folks, the disciples who become apostles, how do they apply to us? Do they apply to us specifically today? And if so, how? We're going to dive a little deeper into that. Toward the end of today's message, we're going to answer that question a little more fully. I just gave you a hint, a foreshadowing last week when I said, remember, this was a training mission. And so that has a little bit to do with how we're going to be interpreting this passage. So let's get some context. It's always good to read through, especially such a short passage this way, to read through the passage itself. And that way we know what we're dealing with, and then we'll start unpacking it as we go. I'm reading again from the New Living Translation this time. I like to compare and contrast a lot of contemporary translations uh, because it gives us different flavors and sometimes it can help us achieve a little better look at specifics if you're really starting to dive into something. Verse 7 of Mark 6, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Sounds like this is going to be a temporary kind of situation. Verse 10, wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Let's pray. God, as we continue to look into this passage, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our ultimate guide because you have promised that one of your job description items is to guide us into all truth. And that truth emanates from you and from your character. And so we're asking you to show us more about yourself and your character through your Holy Spirit as he brings these things to light. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's a brief summary as we tackle this little section. The disciples were learning in this training mission that they could trust God to meet all of their practical needs if they are putting first the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel gives us that verse that so many people quote a lot. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. And that comes from Matthew 6.33. A lot of people try to misuse that and they'll say, oh, well, basically God is just a great slot machine in the sky, and as long as I tithe, he's going to pay my bills. Not what this is saying. It's saying this is a little more all-encompassing. Someday we'll go into that, but you should know that I do believe in giving to support kingdom's work, as we'll look at today, 
but we can't boil it down to some sort of a, uh, a set, if you do X and Y, Z will happen. I think it's good for us to say what he's talking about is that God owns everything and we need to put him first in our lives. Let's talk about, I think it's a good time for us to talk about for a few minutes, different types of ministry support because people have questions about that. And this is one of those passages that leads us into that discussion. The Apostle Paul gives us probably just about more than any other New Testament writer some insight about that. And it helps be a guide for us to know, are we being like a New Testament body of believers in the way we're supporting people who are doing full-time Christian ministry? We're going to see that there are several different types of support. There's bivocational, full-time salaried positions, parachurch ministries outside the local church, and faith missions. Let's look at those, all of those real briefly here to, uh, today. Bivocational ministry, I knew a thing about that. I grew up with a dad who was a bivocational minister. And so he worked full-time for Arizona Public Service Company, helping do gas flow studies as they were growing the valley of Phoenix and parts west of Phoenix with all the new subdivisions that were going out there. So he was an engineer, and that's what he did full-time to put bread on the table. But he voluntarily served in several different churches helping start new works in the valley area for about 35 years. So he was bivocational. That means that he was doing exactly what Paul had done in several locations, especially Corinth, when he became a tent maker. That's become kind of a common term for people who would say, oh, I'm going to do a tent maker ministry, which means that I'm going to do some sort of secular work to earn my living. And while I'm doing that, I'm also going to be dedicating a great deal of my time to doing ministry in that location. So bivocational ministry is good. It's New Testament. Paul said, I'm doing this so that I won't be a financial burden on those that I'm serving when he was in Corinth. But Paul doesn't say that everybody should do that. And we understand that because he gives us some insight to that. In 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. You'll know that he was traveling from city to city, appointing different leaders, including elders who would help kind of administrate the ministries of those churches. And it also gives us an inference in that passage that there were some elders who did things other than just preaching and teaching. You should know that you're really blessed with elders here who have a lot of Bible knowledge. I've had people tell us this several times. They say, for a church this relatively small, you have been really gifted with some biblically knowledgeable elders. And I'm very grateful for that. Because any one of them could step up to the plate or to the pulpit, so to speak, and be able to unpack God's word in a way that's really trustworthy. And I appreciate that. And we help sort of hold each other accountable. Because if one of us were to start to stray into deep weeds because our memories get loose or something, we can hold each other accountable. And I've gotten some texts and or emails after certain messages that says, I don't think you meant to say this there. Sounded like you just had a spoonerism and you said the opposite of what you were going for so I appreciate that and I welcome it because we want to hold each other accountable to doing the scriptures right and there's the Herman family we're so glad to see you guys first time that we've seen Rosalina show up so good to see you so we know that Paul is saying these people deserve to be well cared for that's a passage where he uses an analogy. He follows up that by saying, the workman is deserving of his wages, 1 Timothy 5.18. And he's using a little bit of an agricultural, um, agrarian, agrarian, where they're talking about growing stuff and having cattle and things like that. 
And he's using an analogy from that saying that you shouldn't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the wheat. And we would go, right, Paul. That's really deep. That's insightful. And we think, I don't have a clue what that means. Well, Joy and I have been watching Restoration Road about these guys that restore old barns and move them over and put these great big huge pieces of logs together and make new stuff out of it. And there was one thing that was a threshing floor within a big barn, and they said they would actually have a post in the middle, and they would walk the oxen around in a circle, and they would tread out the wheat. That would be smashing it down to be able to separate the chaff from the kernels, and that way they could do the threshing process. And Paul's saying that's what they used to do, and he says don't muzzle the ox, don't keep it from eating some of that grain for fear that he's not going to be as productive. He'll actually be counterproductive because you'll take away his energy and he won't be able to walk around and tread that grain if he doesn't eat some of it. So you need to feed the ox. So, and so that means that I guess you could call me the counterpart to an ox if uh, we're going to use Paul's analogy because he says you're not supposed to withhold that which would allow them to go ahead and feed their families. They need to be supported. And then he's talking about full-time kinds of ministry. The New Testament is really good about showing how we ought to be supporting people well. And you guys really have. There have been times when I've said, please don't give me any more raises. You've given me more than is adequate, and I appreciate it, but especially when times have been tough, we want to make sure that we're being good stewards with the money that God gives us through contributors. And you guys have never failed to take good care of your ministers, including me and my family, and I appreciate that very much. You are exemplary in that area. Um, there, you should know that there was one time in seminary when Joy and I were not making a ton. She was working as a building manager for a high-rise office building in Fort Worth, wound up becoming two buildings. She's so much smarter than I am. And so she was making a salary that was okay, but it wasn't, you know, over the top. And I was a student, so I was going to school every day. And somebody in our Sunday school class at our church said, would you guys be offended if we tithed our cow to you? we know you're training for the ministry and you probably don't have a lot of money to buy you know meat because that's expensive and I thought I don't think there's anything forbidding that and I love steak and so I said yeah that'd be great and so they gave us a tenth of their cow when they had it slaughtered and we had so much meat that semester and we were able to invite people into our little tiny seminary apartment and have meals together and develop fellowship it was a wonderful thing so it's still okay to do that these days, even though people usually don't tie their cows like they used to. My granddad, who ministered in West Texas during the Depression, got paid sometimes with a live chicken. Sometimes they would get a five-pound sack of flour. Sometimes they would get eggs, whatever people happen to have, fresh produce. And if that's all they had, that's all they got. But it helped them eat, and that was good. Uh, we tend to do things more in a token fashion, and it's called money these days in our culture. And so most people just get a salary and that's what uh, we typically do. Well, parachurch ministries, let's look at that for a second. What is a parachurch? Para meaning to come alongside. That means that it's an outside agency, usually that can do something more specific and on a broader scale than a local small congregation can do. I actually worked for a parachurch agency for a year. We were in New York State, and I was the executive director of Neighborhood Bible Studies, and they produced Bible study guides, and they had volunteers around the country that would train people on how to do inductive Bible studies with folks. It was a really difficult year for us because I was a transitional leader coming away from ladies who had founded it 40 years earlier, and anybody who's come in to take over any kind of an agency that's been founded by people that have been there that long, 
there's some pretty steep traditions that go deep. And, uh, but I learned a lot. I learned, I'm sure, more than anybody else did around that. It was a great year. But that was a parachurch organization. Now, there's some pros and cons to parachurch organizations that do this sort of thing. The pros are they can highly focus on what their task is. The cons are that they're usually not under the oversight of specific denominational leaders or of elders within a local body of believers. And so there can get to be a little loosey-goosey out in the deep weed stuff that happened in some of those situations. Fortunately, and to their credit, they had gotten people onto their board that would be held, holding them accountable that way as they would have if they had been in the local church. Some examples of the kinds of things a parachurch ministry can do include things like Publishing, Christian education, missionary support, medical missions, and transportation. I'll touch on a couple of these because our church sort of intersects a little bit with some of these, in fact. And you may not be aware of this. So this is a really good thing for you to know. Okay, if I'm giving my money to this organization, what's happening with that money? Well, you're supporting me and my family for one thing, and I appreciate that greatly. But we also have our fingers out there in all these other areas, too. Um, Gwen Crotz was a friend of ours that worked for our denomination and, uh, in fact, I was a camp pastor for a bunch of little GAs, Girls in Action, back in Arizona when I was in college. And Gwen was our special missionary speaker, and she gave the talk every day to these little girls. Gwen was an amazing lady, and she had such an, an administrative skill. And she was able to be in Hong Kong for years as her career missionary, and she was in charge of the denominational publishing house in Hong Kong, and they published all kinds of Bible study materials and Sunday school materials for kids and Bible translations in Mandarin and some of the other dialects there in China. And so that's one of the things that your money can help support if it's done through a parachurch organization. We give a, a tiny fraction to our local denomination and it gets disseminated that way. So you may have a penny or two that winds up into the hands of people like Gwen. It's not huge, but it's something. And if we have 43,000 other churches our sizes, those things tend to multiply. And then there's Christian education. We had those volunteers that were teaching how to do neighborhood Bible studies and at the business, lunch hour Bible studies and other things like that with neighborhood Bible studies. But there are some of you that have been involved in community Bible fellowship. That would be considered a parachurch Christian education style organization. And they do a great job. They're so well organized. They're great at asking friends to bring other people in. And because they are organized, they're able to give people different tasks. And so not only do they have a vision, but they have a plan for how to achieve that vision and make it grow. And so I appreciate the fact that we have folks that have been benefit, uh, beneficiaries of this kind of parachurch organization. Missionary support. We're a bit of a hybrid church in an unusual way. We're just renegades that way. But we have... Uh, merged with another church, and they brought with them some supported missionaries through some of these parachurch missions agencies. So we took that on as part of our mission and vision as well. Plus, we had the denominational missionaries through the Southern Baptist Convention, that's the largest Protestant missionary force in the world. And one of the things that happens with our missionary support is that we get to know our missionaries really closely because we're supporting them that way. We get newsletters from them. We'll have them come in and speak when they're on furlough. You'll get to hear Pedro Garcia from Chile in October, by the way, because he's coming. And uh, we get to, to really see, feel, and touch folks that are doing work. And you should know that that's a part of our Great Commission outreach. That's one way that we're supporting evangelism and discipleship in countries all around the world because of that. 
And I was counting them up the other day, and because I tend to forget about one of the couples that we tend to not mission, that mention very much because uh, they're in a dangerous area of the world, and so I tend to just kind of gloss over that. But we support, or partially support, eight different missionaries. And for again, for a small church, I think that's really commendable. And we didn't back away from any of our mission support in the entire last two years that we've been going through what they, some people call it a pandemic. And good for you for that. Again, you're to be commended for that. And then there's some things, it's an interesting one, in transportation. Now, medical missions, I will mention that real briefly. I've mentioned my friend Tom Elkins. He's with the Lord now. He was at what became our sponsor church that we grew out of, Packard Road Baptist Church, and then it became Crossroads. And Tom would help train other surgeons in Ghana and Nigeria how to do very specialized, unusual kinds of surgeries with those folks over there. So that was part of his tithe. He would spend enough time doing that so that our Baptist hospitals over there would have the best trained local physicians to care for their people. And that's a part of medical, medical missions. He did a great job with that. There are other hospitals around the world, many of them denominational. And if anybody would like to do a little survey on that, I'd love to see that. But I have a feeling that most of the hospitals that we see around the world that are humanitarian probably got started because of some sort of Christian effort. And I think that's great. And then transportation. There are some missions agencies that provide transfer, transportation for people doing missions work. My own dad, again, the bivocational minister, got to fly in different places in the southwest uh, United States to preach in small churches that were without pastors. And he went with an agency called Wings for Christ. And I thought my dad was like Indiana Jones as a preacher. And I got to go with him a couple of times. It was so cool. And I, I read just two days ago in a Christianity Today article about uh, a lady named Becky, with an I, B-E-C-K-I, Becky Dillingham, who's a pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And she and her husband and kids moved to Chad in Africa and they had an unusual chance to show some love to the people in Chad that they were serving there because not only were they helping transport different missions agent people around, missionaries, but they had something to do, a humanitarian thing for an antelope. They were able to fly some gazelle to a game preserve because they said there were only about 100 gazelle of this style left, little curved horns. Uh, my brother-in-law who was in Zimbabwe that I went to see one time calls them DLCs. They're deer-like creatures. He said, if, you're, if you never know which one you're talking about, because they have an abundant different varieties of those, he just calls them DLCs. So she got to do a specific DLC called a gazelle, and they transported it because she said, we have five marks of mission. It would be kind of like ways to gauge whether they're doing their work or not. And one of those marks is creation care, looking after the environment and wildlife. And what I see happening when people do that, like Tom Elkins going to do medical missions, or like Becky, oh, and by the way, the, one of the gazelles that they transported, they named that gazelle Becky after her pilot. Isn't that nice? But people in that area will listen more carefully to the gospel that you're sharing because they see that it's not just a sales pitch of an ideology. You mean what you're saying, and it's a holistic gospel that affects every area of life and not just some intellectual assent to an ideology that you say, I believe. And then faith missions. Many, in fact, I would say probably most of the missionaries that we help support are doing it on faith missions, which means they have to raise their own support. Well, how do they do that? Well, they go to churches like us, and they speak, and they share their work. And most of the ones, especially the ones that we know, never asked for a dime. 
they said, if you want me to share our ministry, I'll do so. And I would say, we would love to be able to extend an invitation for people to help support you if you would like that. And they would say, well, thank you. But they weren't going to even bring it up. They're just that humble about it. And I'm so grateful that everybody that we support, you can see the fruitfulness about what they do. And even though we're a smaller congregation, comparatively, again, when we add ourselves to several other smaller congregations, we have enough to have full-time income for these missionaries. And that's how they are able to do what they do. It's a great cooperative venture, and it's a good look at the interconnectivity of people within the body of Christ in a larger frame. Um, my wife and I toured with a faith ministry. We'd only been married nine months when we auditioned for this ministry. It was a creative evangelistic and discipleship ministry, and we used music and drama. And so it was a little bit outside the norm. It wasn't unusual for buses to have quartets going around, you know, the family quartets and stuff. That was kind of normal, and they would go on a love offering basis. But we did this with 10 people in a 10-person van hauling a converted horse trailer for all of our equipment. And we did that for a year. And we went all across the United States and up into Canada. And we did it by faith. And by faith, I mean that we really did it by faith. We didn't have one big deep pocket person that was sponsoring the whole shebang. Our director was a very uh, well-respected musician in our state. And I trusted him to know what he was doing. And he did a great job doing that. But his sister-in-law, Beverly, was our booking agent. And she would get out her atlas. Do you remember those great big books that have maps and stuff? She'd get out her atlas, and she'd start traveling a certain route that we were going on, and she would call ahead to the churches in that area, explain what we did, how we did it. We'd be able to be there, and we'd be happy to do it on a love offering basis. And we did that for a year. We gathered for two weeks of rehearsal camp. We learned seven different one-hour programs so that that was our repertoire. And the longest that we could stay in one area was seven days because we had nothing else to offer. And we did that once in Northern California at a youth camp, and that was a blast. For one thing, we didn't have to set up every night like we were doing before. And those of you who set up stuff, you're gigging, you know what that's like. But it was also great because we had these drama uh, vignettes and these different acts that we would do, and people responded so well to that. One of the things it showed me, too, it blew away some of my misconceptions, because I thought when we went to this great big church in Portland, Oregon one time, I thought, this is terrible. This is the flesh jumping out. I thought, we're going to get a big love offering this time, baby. Not so much. They said, we have a budget for this item, and so we're going to give you our normal budgeted item for somebody, and it was kind of small. And that was okay, because we said, whatever God provides, we're going to do that. Then we would go to a tiny little church, like in Dumas, Texas or something, and we'd show up, and they'd have a big bulletin board that said, Didymi is coming. Didymi, a Greek word that means to share or to give. That was our name. And they treated us like royalty, and people showed up, and they had beat the bushes, and they would have all this thronging crowd, this tiny little church, standing room only, and they would just give so generously, and it blew us away every time. We'd think, good night. It's incredible. So what it showed us is that we can trust God, that when you put the kingdom first, he will provide for your needs, and he will do so sometimes literally on an as-needed basis because we would say, Lord, we really need 50 more bucks so we can fill that gas tank. <laughs> And it would come through just when we needed it. So that was an interesting eye-opening time together. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 as we get back into this passage again. I hope that kind of gives you a little overview about the different ways that our church connects with different kind of support. Basically, what this says is, Jesus says, hey, guys, pack light for this training mission. Don't take a lot with you this time. But we also, as I mentioned last week, cannot extrapolate from that 
a specific uh, application and say that that should be the case every time. I'm glad because, quite frankly, I don't think that Joy and I could have continued to do that style of on-the-road sort of ministry indefinitely. That gets to wear on you over time. And so it's really good that God's chosen method of getting his job done is usually through small congregations just like ours and that there's more of a longevity in ministry that way. So he says, pack light, but then later on, we can see in Luke's gospel when he says, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And I found it interesting that he said bag or sandals because back in the other one in Mark, he said, you could wear sandals, but don't take an extra pair of clothing. I don't know what the disparity is there, the difference is there, but some of you look it up and let me know later. And they said, no, nothing. We didn't lack anything. And I think what he was asking was, see, on that training mission, I was training you to trust me because I will take care of your needs if you will put me first. He says, but now, meaning this time, this is much later in the ministry, if you have a purse or a travel bag or a money bag, take it. And also a bag, meaning like a duffel bag, when you can have some changes of clothes or whatever. This is one reason why we can't just point to one gospel in one passage and draw a sweeping application that way. And then verse 10 says, stay in the same house. Wherever you go, he says, stay in the same house until you leave town. Remember, I'm going to do a follow-up. This is the epilogue from the story I told you last week about the couple that came and lived in our spare bedroom for a while when Joy and I were going to school, and, and we were in Phoenix. It didn't look like they had any intention of leaving anytime soon. And we hadn't really mapped that out like we probably could have. We probably should have had some expectations up front. But I think they were missing that part. Stay in the same house until you leave town. And it became obvious that they weren't intending to leave town. And it didn't appear that they were intending to leave our house either. And after we saw that they didn't have any full-time ministry jobs, but they did have some part-time work, both of them, and enough income that when we were starting to put our little tab, uh, our little abacuses there and figured out how much money they were doing, this is way back there, you know, like in the 70s, we figured out they probably had enough money that they could have been on their own. And so we finally had to have a little difficult conversation with them, and we said, do you have some idea when you think you might be moving on? And they did. And we have still maintained good relationships with them through the years, although it was slightly strained for a time, as you might imagine. But while it's difficult to be involved in that here, I think it's good for us to know that Jesus had a specific plan, and that specific plan for this passage was a temporary situation. And then he was also saying, but if you reach these people and they won't listen to what you're sharing about this gospel that you want to share with them, if they won't invite you in, if they won't give you some sort of an open door, then shake the dust off your feet and go on to show that you have abandoned these people to the fate. Now, this is something that's interesting for me, and I dug into it a little bit, because if we were to make a straight apples-to-apples -apples comparison, that might suggest to us that we should go door-to-door -to, -door to people, and if they won't listen to the gospel, we're supposed to go, eh, I shake off the dust in you, and I run, I'm off, I'm I don't think that's what this is talking about. This was a Jewish audience. This is in Israel. They're going to towns in Israel, which means they had a Jewish audience who had all the access to the Old Testament. They had all the scriptures that they would have been referring to. And when they were saying that they were asking them to repent, that was probably the application portion or the response part of their message. I'm sure that it wasn't just like Jonah going to Nineveh and having a two-sentence message. Repent. 
or else. That's not their message, but that would have been the application to their message. So they probably would have been saying, these are the Old Testament passages that show us this is the Messiah. The Messiah has come. We're following him. This is Jesus. This is the kingdom, and it's right present among you. I think that's more in line with how they would have been teaching and leading people into the truth. And then if they wouldn't listen to that, they were supposed to do that. But that was because it was a Jewish thing. They would say in the Mishnah, we have some of these writings in Jewish Mishnah, they would say that even a clot of Gentile dirt was enough to make you unclean. So if they were to do that to a Gentile, the Gentile might have gone, why? Shake the dust off. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know why I made the Gentile sound Jewish. But at any rate, I think that he knew that their audience was going to understand what they were saying because sometimes God's people don't act like God's people. And God's chosen people were not acting very open to the thing they should have been open to when these people were presenting from Scripture information that would point to the Messiah. So for them to do that, it would have caused them to think, why are they doing that? And it would have been really meaningful to the Jewish audience, but not so much today. Today, I think it's really important for us to follow Paul's advice to be all things to all people so that some may be saved and to continue demonstrate, demonstrating to these folks compassion, and sacrificial love so that they will be drawn to the Christ in us. And I think it takes a lot of preparation, soil preparation, if you're going to use the agricultural terms, a lot of watering those seeds that we're planting. And we can't expect somebody to just jump on the gospel in one hearing. I think it takes a lot of pre-evangelism to use the term. It's all evangelism, but I had one guy tell me that he thinks it's pre-evangelism, which is just that cultivation. And a lot of that happens to to be relationally, which is important. Verses 12 and 13, they preached and they met needs. And again, this is what folds into what I think today is a good application. We need to meet people's practical needs. One of the two people who stayed in our house that time wound up going later with a missions agency, and they were in Amsterdam for a while. And he said that there were some people that they started to interact with personally, and one of them said, I can't watch the video you're trying to give me because I don't have a VHS player. And so they said, well, let's gather up some money and go out and buy this guy a VHS player. So they did. And they they weren't making a lot of money either. So it was a sacrificial gift on their part to do that. And they were able to give this guy a VHS player. Those of you who don't know what a VHS player is, ask your parents. And they gave the guy that. They gave him the tape with the Jesus movie on it. The guy was able to talk with him. That was a way of meeting a practical need so that it would build a bridge to the gospel so he would be more open to receiving this gospel they were sharing. Um, The first 12 disciples learned this principle that I like to consider today, and I think it's so true, that the gospel is holistic. It's like Becky Dillingham, the pilot, who has a gazelle named after her. She learned that the gospel is holistic. They had five marks of mission effectiveness. And so it all just wasn't going on a a sales pitch thing, ringing a doorbell and saying, do you believe? If not, I'm shaking my dust off my feet and I'm getting out of here. It was holistic and it touches every area of somebody's life. That's good for us to continue to be aware of today. The people in Ghana and Nigeria took the gospel seriously because of our friend Tom, who was teaching doctors. They 
really take the gospel seriously for people who say, I'm not just one and done. I'm not in here breezing in for a one-night stand like we did with Didymi when we were traveling for that year. That's another reason why the local church is so important. We need longevity. We've got to develop relationships. We've got to get in people's homes. We've got to use that Scottish term and get our feet under the table because that's where relationships are developed. So as I get ready to, to wrap up today, let's talk about hypocrites for a minute, shall we? Okay. Uh, <laughs> There was a movement in our upper level denominational leadership about 40 years ago. So this would have been just about the time that I was finishing seminary and we kind of watched some of this take place from afar. And they were trying to actually suggest that we needed to get rid of some of our Baptist hospitals in different countries around the world. And this really angered people like my friend Tom who was over there training people to do surgeries because he knew that in some locations that was the only Christian witness those people would ever see was going to these clinics and to that hospital. And he said, if we remove that, we're removing one of our touch points of the gospel. And I also felt that it was short-sighted and it didn't consider that the gospel was holistic. They were reducing evangelism to one point only, and that is they've got to be able to say, yes, I have said the sinner's prayer. Yes, I have done this. Yes, I have followed your checklist, and therefore I'm okay because I punched my ticket to heaven. And I think they're missing the point, and they're missing it scripturally, quite frankly, because the gospel is holistic, and it ought to have an impact on everything about somebody else because the gospel changes all of us, and it ought to be something that we can see and pour into other people's lives that way as well what Jesus did for us. He was incarnational. He got into our world. He put up with us, yahoos, long enough to show us what God is really like. And then he laid down his life for us. And that's what he's asking us to do for the people in our lives so that they can see the gospel more clearly. So it's easy to find hypocrisy in the church. Yes, there are going to be hypocrites there. But let me also say that it's not right to reject Christianity and just throw it out simply because you can find hypocrites. Why do I say that? Well, there's some logic involved in that. For one thing, you can find hypocrites in every culture or subculture. I mean, you're going to find vegans who sneak some bacon now and then. Can I get a witness? That's, <laughs> that's not, <laughs> people are going, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's not the real reason why it's wrong to dismiss Christianity because there are those who call themselves Christians who are hypocritical. Logically, this is where the logic comes in, you don't test the integrity of an ideology by those who disobey it. You don't test the effectiveness of veganism by finding vegans who eat bacon. You test the integrity of an ideology by those who follow it. You see the logic? That does make sense. And that's why everything about the gospel and those who get it, those who are adhering to the gospel, they get this. They understand it. They're laying their lives down for their friends. They're pouring their lives out to other people so that people can more clearly see Jesus manifested through their lives. And if you look at them and you look at all these wonderful heroes of our faith, that's what you see. And let me also point out that Paul was right when he said that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, which means that all of us are going to fall short at one point or another. So that would be easy for us to find anybody and say, well, you've got a fault, therefore Christianity is right out. I'm chucking it in the bin. And we can't do that if we're going to be logical because we really need to look at the one person who always did things right, and that's Jesus. Like I mentioned 
couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, just give me the pure Christianity, which is to know Jesus and make him known. That boils it right down because if we know him, it's going to transcend a lot of these other things, and we're going to want to do these things. The have to becomes a want to, and that's where real Christianity starts to shine. And I'm so grateful that we have good evidence from people who are doing this because they're making Christ much more easy to see. Churches are always going to have rascals. I can be a rascal at times. There's a rascal in me. I know that. I can put on the mask and act more righteous than I really am or try to act like, oh, I made that decision because God led me to that. Nah, he didn't. You're just blaming God for that. You know, it's easy for us to be hypocrites. There will always be those, but like C.S. Lewis says, I can only conclude if I'm looking for something that satisfies my life and nothing in this world satisfies me then I can only conclude that I was made for another world. And we all are. All of us are made for another world. And once we grasp that concept and we understand that there is good evidence that Christ really did exist and he laid his life down for you and me and he substituted himself on the cross for our sins, then life can start changing. By the way, our family just watched that The Most Reluctant Convert movie a couple of days ago. It's excellent, so good. It's an autobiographical presentation of C.S. Lewis and how he came to faith from being an atheist. I loved it. Very well done. I commend it to you. Feel free and do that, but it's not a requirement. Just do it if you want to. One of the things that I would like for our church to grasp is that I would like the gospel for us to become holistic and that it's not just an ideology so that we can bang on a door and cause people to say, can you say that you've said the sinner's prayer or not? I want them to know the real Jesus, and I want them to see it clearly manifested through true believers who admit we're not there yet, but we're always in process thanks to the Holy Spirit at work in my life. We invite you on the journey with us so that one day we will see him face to face, and then the perfection will come, and we'll be with him forever, and we want as many people with us as possible. Let's pray. Father, the gospel, which can become quite simple in its presentation, starts to look at times like it's very complex, and we probably complicate it more than we should. And I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, will make it simple to us by saying we just need to know Jesus more and more. Because the more we get to know you and start to act like you because you're transforming us through your Holy Spirit, the more you become more apparent and visible and accessible to the people around us. And I pray that you will be. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.